Hello, my name is Emily Clark. I head up the tax team at Travis Smith, and I'd like to say a big welcome to our Travelling Seamlessly Global Mobility podcast. In this series, members of the Travis Smith Global Mobility team will talk to you about the implications of moving your people and operations into and out of different countries, and also talk about situations where members of your team may need to work in more than one country. Kicking off the series this week, Elizabeth Grout and Kulsum Hardy from our incentives and remuneration team will talk about the tax issues that can arise in relation to business visitors to the UK. Executives of international businesses may need to visit the UK for a variety of reasons. That might be to attend meetings, to take part in training or to participate in specific projects. And as Elizabeth and Kulsum discuss in this podcast, it's important for your business to be aware of their movements and activities and to consider whether these create an obligation to account for tax in the UK. To find out more about the issues discussed in this podcast, the Travis Smith Global Mobility Team and how we can help with your global mobility projects, you can visit our website www.traversmith.com and search for Global Mobility. And now, over to Elizabeth Kulsum. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, the first in our series on global mobility. I'm Elizabeth Grout, a senior counsel in the incentives and remuneration team here at Travis Smith. And today I am joined by Knowledge Council, Kulsum Hardy, to discuss the main immigration, tax and social security rules that those managing short-term business visitors to the UK have to think about. In this podcast, we will be discussing the treatment of employees, but it should be noted that different rules may apply to directors and also to consultants or managers who are self-employed. These categories of business visitors will be covered in a separate podcast later on in our Global Mobility series, so watch this space. We will also be using the term UK employer quite loosely to refer to the UK business that is engaging the short-term visitor. As we will see, there are points at which it is important to work out who the actual legal or economic employer of such an individual is. Given the differing and sometimes complex issues that a UK employer needs to think about, the first step is to establish some basic facts about the employee and the nature of the working arrangement. Getting the rules wrong can result in penalties, delay and business disruption, so preparation and early action is key. Important questions to ask include, Where does the employee currently live and work and pay taxes? Is the employee a UK national or do they have the right to work in the UK? How long is the visit? What are the estimated dates of arrival and departure? Will the employee have an overseas employer while they work in the UK or will they be employed by a UK entity? Who will the employee work for and will there be any recharge arrangement? Once the key facts have been established, businesses can begin to consider the immigration tax and social security implications. To start off with, Kulsum is going to give an overview of the key immigration issues. Over to you, Kulsum. Thanks, Elizabeth. So as with a lot of things in the area of business visitors, the key to successful UK entry is to plan ahead from an immigration perspective. Short term business visitors will actually fall within the same category as standard visitors to the UK, which includes tourists, people visiting their friends or family or attending educational courses. So standard visitors can only visit the UK for up to six months. And generally, they must either apply and obtain a standard visa before coming to the UK, or they can seek entry as a standard visitor on arrival at the relevant port of entry if they've got special rules because their nationality allows them to do so without a without a visitor visa. However, 
it's really important to understand that if they are coming for um, business purposes, there are restrictions if they don't have a work visa as to what they can do. They can only undertake a limited amount of permitted business activities in the UK. So just running through what permitted activities include, um, they include attending meetings that have been invited to attend in person or give a, giving a one-off or short series of talks and speeches, as long as these aren't organised as commercial events and won't make a profit for the organiser. Other activities they can engage in include negotiating and signing deals and contracts, attending trade fairs for promotional work only, carrying out site visits and inspections and or gathering information for their employment overseas. But what they can't do is work within the UK. So what does work mean? That includes taking up employment in the UK or doing their normal day job from here, doing work for an organisation or business in the UK, doing a work placement or internship, selling directly to the public and or providing goods and services. If the business visitor does want to work, they need to normally get a work visa and the employer sponsored route is usually the one that's most suitable. But it will depend on the activity to be undertaken and this must be obtained in advance before travelling to the UK. Why is this so important? Well, failure to comply with the requirements would lead to a potentially awkward, embarrassing situation of the worker being denied entry uh, at the border. And it could in fact give rise to civil or criminal penalties for illegal working. So it's really important uh, that these are sorted out at an early stage. Great. Thank you, Kulsoom. And of course, a very important reminder to UK businesses before they even start to think about tax and social security. So moving on to tax and let's have a think about income tax and pay as you earn. Now, although this sounds a little bit strange, UK businesses need to be aware that even if an individual coming to the work for them has an overseas employer, is non-UK resident for tax purposes and is paid through an overseas payroll, the starting point is that they will have to pay UK income tax on the earnings for the days that they spend working in the UK. In addition, even if the UK business doesn't employ them directly, the fact that the employee is carrying out work for a business in the UK means that the UK business will be regarded as the host employer for payroll purposes, and they will have to account to HM Revenue and Customs for any tax due under the payroll. It might be helpful to explain this using an example. So let us assume that there is a UK holding company of a group with a Spanish subsidiary. Imagine that the UK company needs on-site help with an IT project for a couple of months this year, and it would like to engage the services of an IT expert who is currently employed by the Spanish subsidiary. This Spanish employee is actually Spanish tax resident. They are paid in Spain by the Spanish subsidiary, and this arrangement whereby they'll be paid by the Spanish subsidiary will continue throughout the two months that they spend in the UK. During the secondment, the employee will also have to pay UK tax on any salary they receive from their Spanish employer. And in addition, even though the UK company will not employ or even pay the individual, it has to set up a shadow payroll. So a payroll that doesn't actually pay the salary because that will be paid by the Spanish subsidiary, but shows how much tax needs to be paid here in the UK. The UK company will also actually have to pay that tax over to the UK revenue. And then it will have to think about whether it should be reimbursed for it from the Spanish subsidiary. That income tax treatment seems unfair because it sounds as if you paid tax in both the UK and the overseas country on the same amount of salary. Yes, Kostum, you're right, it is unfair. But helpfully, the UK has entered into a number of double tax treaties with individual countries which exempt non-resident short-term business visitors from UK income tax, but obviously only if certain conditions are met. These conditions can vary slightly from treaty to treaty, so businesses need to check the terms of the particular treaty they're looking to rely on. But broadly, they will require that 
the non-UK employee does not spend more than 183 days in any 12-month period in the UK. Some treaties say no more than 183 days in any tax year. So this does really need to be checked on a country by country basis. In addition, the non-UK employee has to be paid on behalf of an employer that is outside of the UK. And furthermore, the cost of that salary cannot be recharged or borne by permanent establishment in the UK. So how do you decide who the overseas employer is for, for these purposes and also whether they are properly bearing the cost of employment? Well, when deciding who the individual's employer is under the treaties, here in the UK, we use an economic employer test. Essentially, this looks to who ultimately bears the costs and enjoys the benefits of the employment, rather than who is the actual legal or contractual employer. So, for example, if the employee's salary is paid by the overseas employer, but is then recharged to the UK entity, the condition won't be met because, economically, the employer is in the UK. On the other hand, the conditions will be met even if payments are actually physically made by the UK company, perhaps for administrative ease, but they are actually recharged to the overseas employer. So in summary, for treaty relief to be available, the individual should remain employed outside the UK and their remuneration should not be borne directly or indirectly by a UK entity. So you explained before how a UK uh, host employer can be liable for PAYE. How does this relief tie in with the business's obligation to operate PAYE? This is a very important question to ask. So even if the individual qualifies for relief from UK tax under the Double Tax Treaty, this doesn't automatically remove the obligation to operate a payroll by the UK company. In theory, the UK host employer still needs to operate PAYE and it leaves the individual to claim tax relief through the self-assessment system. Now, clearly, this is an administrative burden and also a cash flow issue for the employee. Therefore, HM Revenue and Customs has devised a process which it calls the Short-Term Business Visitors Agreement or Appendix 4 Agreement. And using this, if the UK company has such an agreement, then it doesn't have to operate PAYE in respect of individuals that meet the treaty conditions we've just discussed. And instead, the UK company has to file an annual return by the 31st of May following the end of every tax year, which sets out the details of the individuals that have been covered by the Appendix 4 Agreement. What's also very helpful is that one agreement can cover a multiple of visitors, so it makes it very user-friendly. That's really helpful if you meet the conditions, but what happens if the treaty relief conditions aren't met, for example, because the salary is recharged to the UK entity? Well, in this case, provided the employee remains non-resident for tax purposes, they will be subject to UK tax on earnings from their UK duties, and the UK employer must operate a UK payroll for this sum. If the income that the individual receives is also taxable in their home country, then the double tax treaty will usually provide for relief to be given through a credit or exemption. However, this is given after the fact and may not completely cover all the tax that has been paid in the UK, especially if the rate of tax payable in the individual's home country is lower than the rate of tax payable in the UK. So the UK has got a very wide network of double tax treaties with lots of countries, but it doesn't have them with every single country. So what happens where you've got somebody coming from a, a country with which we don't have a treaty? Well, again, provided the employee remains non-resident for tax purposes in the UK, then that individual will be subject to UK tax on earnings from their UK duties and the UK employer must operate a UK payroll. Now, if this does result in a double tax charge, there will be no express mechanism to apply for a credit. 
So in this scenario, the employee is likely to ask to be tax equalised, which broadly means to be put in the position they would have been in had they not been liable to UK tax. However, this is ultimately a commercial decision for the employer and not a right or a legal obligation that the employee can demand. If the UK business has to operate payroll on earnings from the UK duties, how does it calculate these and separate them out from the earnings received by the employee for working overseas in which they won't be liable to tax? Well, yes, so although this is easy enough to operate if the individual is spending a block of time in the UK, if they intersperse their time in the UK and abroad over the course of their UK assignment, every month a calculation would need to be made as to how much of the individual's earnings for that month relates to the UK duties and how much relates to overseas. Then POYE would be due on the UK duties. Again, to help relieve this burden where the number of UK workdays during the tax year is 60 or less, so very much a short-term business visitor scenario, employers can apply for another type of agreement with HM Revenue and Customs called the Appendix 8 Agreement. And this agreement allows them to operate POYE at the end of the year based on the actual time that the employee has spent in the UK over the course of the year. So once they know how many days they've actually spent in the UK, the employer can top this all up and pay POYE that way. So finally, before I hand over to Colsoom to talk us through the UK social security regime, it is worth noting that everything we've spoken about so far assumes that the individual is non-UK resident for tax purposes. If they are UK resident, for example, they spend 183 days or more in the UK in a particular tax year, or even dual resident, both in the UK and elsewhere, the position is more complex and the liabilities to UK income tax are potentially greater. Now over to Colsoom to talk about the implications for social security. Businesses may be surprised to learn that the treaty regime that we've just described so far and all the uh, arrangements that HMRC will enter into relating to PAYE are completely separate to the social security obligations of the employer and employee. So I'm going to finish the podcast with a summary of the social security rules. The default position is always that someone working in the UK has to pay UK social security contributions, which we call national insurance contributions or NICs. If someone's only coming to the UK for a short period of time, they won't want to pay uh, UK NICs because they'll be contributing to a system that they probably won't ever benefit from. But luckily, there are rules that can keep a short term business visitor within their home social security system. But how they apply will depend on what category of country for social security purposes only they come from. In summary, businesses will need to establish whether the individual is coming from the EU, a country the UK has a reciprocal social security agreement with, known as a RA country, reciprocal agreement country, or another country known as the rest of the world country. I understand, Kulsum, that when the UK was part of the EU, it benefited from special rules relating to social security. Have these changed at all? Thankfully, they haven't changed to a material extent and can be found in a social security protocol that was agreed between the UK and the EU and which all EU countries are currently signed up to. So broadly, the position is that an individual sent by their EU employer to the UK for a short period of time, not exceeding 24 months, will generally be able to stay within their home social security system, provided certain conditions are met. And many RA or reciprocal agreement countries have similar arrangements for these so-called detached or posted workers. An employee who's able to meet these conditions does need to obtain a certificate of coverage from their home social security authority, and that will prove that they remain insured under their home system for the duration of their stay in the UK. So the UK employer does need to ask for the certificate of coverage, which should be read carefully, and you need to obtain a translation if necessary. To ensure it covers the correct period of time is based on the correct information, so it's correctly issued. 
When it gets the valid certificate of coverage, the UK employer shouldn't have to operate NICs, employers or employees, and neither should the overseas employer. The individual and overseas employer, if applicable, will continue to pay Social Security in their home country instead, and the UK employer should seek overseas advice to make sure they do not also have an overseas liability. What happens to employees who come to work in the UK but also work and live in one or more EU countries at the same time? These employees are known under the Social Security protocol as multi-state workers. Um, depending on their specific working arrangements, it should be possible for them to obtain a certificate of coverage so that they only pay Social Security in one country. And that country is usually one in which they work most or for a substantial amount of time. If a valid certificate is produced, the UK employer shouldn't have to operate UK NICs, either employers or employees, and neither should the overseas employer. The individual and the overseas employer, if applicable, will continue to pay Social Security in the home country instead. And the employer should seek overseas advice to make sure they don't also have a liability overseas. And what happens if the employee doesn't have a certificate of coverage by the time they start to work in the UK, but they actually have applied for one? The uh, UK employer must still operate UK NICs unless and until the certificate of coverage has been obtained. And uh, to do that, they uh, shouldn't allocate a temporary national insurance number to the employee, but instead the number should be left blank in both the employee's record and the employer's RTI submission. And once the certificate is obtained, it should be possible to claim a refund for UK NICs deducted or paid at a time covered by the certificate, but, but before it was issued. And so what about the rest of the world? Um, if the worker comes from a rest of the world country, then there is potentially a 52 week holiday from NICS, provided certain conditions are met. So it's not automatic. Um, broadly, the conditions are that the employee is not ordinary resident or employed in the UK. The posting to the UK is part of an employment that is mainly outside the UK and the employment is with an employer whose place of business is outside the UK. Now, we hope this has been a useful reminder of the issues to think about. Although it sounds as if there is a lot to deal with, once businesses have got good procedures in place and provided that they are well prepared, welcoming short-term business visitors to the UK doesn't need to be a logistical headache. Thank you very much for listening.